0: chapter one james chapter one so uh come on there i am uh while you're turning to james chapter one i have uh a couple things for you first um hopefully you saw one of these but if you didn't we have a james devotional for you to read through the next 10 weeks as we're going through the book of james they're out on all the tables so grab one uh i do want you to fix something uh i have a pretty massive typo. And so, uh, on page seven down the third, maybe you don't read introductions, but just in case, uh, on the third paragraph, I say James was known for his, it's supposed to say godliness and it says godless. And so that's totally wrong. Uh, totally wrong. So James was known for his godliness. So if you can t- scratch that through and write godliness, or just put the in, in between the, uh, L and E, that'd be great. I don't know any other typos, but other than that, we're good. Uh, But we we have these for you. Grab these. These are totally doable. There's two devotions a week. That's pretty simple, right? If you don't do any devotions until like next Friday, you can do. oh, I can still do them Friday, Saturday, done. So uh, each week, there's also a memory verse that we'll be memorizing as a church together. uh, And they're all uh, together in the appendix as well, but they're scattered throughout the book. So we're going to uh, hopefully go through the book of James in 10 weeks and this will match it. Uh, and the text that you, that you do devotions with match what we're preaching. So grab one of these on the way and fix, uh, godliness, uh, from godless to godliness. Uh, the second thing that I want you to know about is we have corporate prayer the first Wednesday of each month. And we will have that again this coming Wednesday, uh, Wednesday at six thirty. this coming Wednesday at six thirty. want to make sure you know about that. So If you're able, I'd love for you to stay in with me. We're going to read James chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. Uh, That'll be all we have time for. Uh, For this morning, I have a lot of notes. So um, James chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. At the end of reading, I'll say this is the word of the Lord. You'll say thanks be to God. I'll say it with you. And of course, we're thanking God that he'd be so kind to give us the scriptures. But we're also saying, Lord, the things that you teach me, I want to say yes to. I want to be obedient to. So James chapter 1, verse 1 through 8. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's, let's pray together. You can have a seat. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much for your love and your mercy uh, thank you for this book. Thank you for this text that we'll study today. Help us, God, as we study it. Um, see and understand just how great you are. That in the midst of trials, in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of suffering, that you are uh, our portion, you are our prize. And help us uh, focus our minds in on the truth of that this morning, though it might be, might be difficult. Uh, I pray that also the sweetness of Jesus and the forgiveness that we have in the gospel that's readily available to us all. Um, would just re-amaze us again this morning. We love you. We pray this in all. In Jesus name. Amen. So. uh I'll give you a little intro and then we'll start with James chapter 1. The book of James was written by the brother of Jesus. James is the younger brother of Jesus. We know that from Matthew chapter 13. He was a leader in the early church, and he was afforded a position of authority in the church. Galatians chapter 1, Acts 15 tell us that that he was a leader in the Jerusalem church, and he was he presided over the council of Jerusalem in Acts 15 when they're trying to decide what do we do about these Gentiles? Should we do circumcision or not? He presided over that. Galatians 2 uh, 9. Puts him as one of the pillars of the early church with John. And Peter. Uh, and, but James wasn't converted during Jesus' public ministry like Peter and John. You know, Peter and John were his disciples. James was actually converted after Jesus' earthly ministry. Uh, he was a skeptic up until after the resurrection. So he was known, James was known for his godliness, not godless, known for his godliness, his zeal and obedience, and his devotion to prayer. Uh, he was killed for his faith likely around AD 62. One of the early martyrs of the Christian church which means the letter was written prior to that, uh, likely sometime around 44 to 48, probably 88, 44, 48. So an early letter compared to most letters in the new Testament, it was written really early. Uh, and it was likely a circular letter. So it was written from, for many different people, uh, read by many congregations for the purpose of, uh, encouragement. Um, James, who was Jewish, wrote to likely Jewish Christians, so it's tempered with a lot of Jewish flavor. He quotes the Old Testament frequently, has lots of uh, themes, as you read through the book of five chapters of book of James, of perseverance, uh, trying to understand faith versus works, taming the tongue, living as a doer, not just a hearer, living in holiness, understanding the coming judgment of God, etc. Those are some of the primary themes that you'll see. As I said, it's written to people who are Jewish. um, And so... uh, You can see that because it says the 12 tribes of the dispersion. Uh, Now, when James was being formed as, as a part of the canon. Uh, this is around the third century. Uh, there was a lot of debate on whether James should be in. Some 1,200 years later, Martin Luther, looking back at the debate, he wrote that he famously called James the epistle of straw. That's not a good thing. And he even said, uh, in a real angry German voice, James mangles the scripture and therefore I oppo- uh, therefore uh, opposes Paul and all scripture. And then he probably cussed and drank beer right after he said it. Like, he didn't like the book of James at all and insisted for a while that the book of James shouldn't even be in the New new testament canon uh eventually towards the end of his life he came around because he knew that saying that it shouldn't be in uh then you can give uh you can give freedom to say a lot of things shouldn't be in but for a while he luther wasn't a, f- a fan of it now it's a good thing that luther lived in 1500 not 300 so he, he has no say so um <laughs> but james is in the book uh, in, in the new testament it should be in but there's a lot of debate and the reason why is primarily chapter two, which we'll get to in a few weeks, the understanding between faith and works where he seemingly, he doesn't. And I'll get to that in a few weeks. Seemingly seems to contradict Paul. I think it's James two twenty four and Romans chapter three, verse 21. I think it's those two three twenty Maybe, uh, they seemingly like say almost complete opposites. You don't have to look that up right now. We'll cover that in a few weeks. You can look it up after church. If you really need to find out what the world I'm talking about. Anyway. Um, so, uh, the book of James, though, I like it. it. It it fits my kind of personality because he has kind of a, a punchy, direct style, tell it like it is kind of thing. Um, he doesn't, sh- he shoots right from the hip. He doesn't get bobbed, bogged down and lengthy kind of theological exposition too much. He, he goes right after it. And so uh, there are things that are tough to tackle in the letter. There's a lot of debate that surrounds it. Uh, as I said uh, because it it was contested of whether it should be in the canon, one of the primary reasons, as I said, is that difference between Paul and James uh, and Romans 3 and James 2, uh, because of uh, trying to understand faith versus works. The name Jesus is mentioned twice in the book. And so it can also feel like it doesn't have a gospel-centered feel, but concentrates on obedience and what obedience looks like. And so... Because of that, there can be debate on, is this book really proclaiming the gospel? So, uh, as we go through the book, because it's trying to tell us as believers the way that we're supposed to live, it can feel like law. It can feel like law. So, Everything that we're going to see on, this is how you should live. This is what your life should look like. It's predicated on, finds its foundation on, since you're a believer in Christ, since you have been saved, since you've trusted the gospel, here's what it should look like. But if we don't know that, and we just see, because James is a straightforward, this concentrate on holiness, this is what your life should look like. It can feel like law, and I got to do these things in order to be saved. And that's not at all what James is wanting to do. But uh, the book of James, as it's written, is a no nonsense, down to earth, no beating around the bush kind of, kind of guy. He's straight to the point. And so uh, he doesn't linger with pleasantries uh, but just gets right. You can see that in verse one, where he says, "James, servant of God, Lord of uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in dispersion." And then he tells you, "Count all your trials, suffering. <laughs> I mean, uh, count all your sufferings as, uh, and trials as joy." So, like, he gets right to it. Whenever he starts, he doesn't really kind of uh, pepper us with a lot of uh, pleasantries, etc. He gets right at the stuff. So, um, I like that. I, I find it refreshing. It's kind of how I uh, how I am, and so. I don't know. I haven't done an Enneagram. You could probably number me. Some people have told me, but, but maybe that's why. Maybe it's because I like to get right down to business and he seems to be the exact same way, but nevertheless, uh, James might not be your personality, but James was written by under the inspiration of the Holy spirit. And so we can all benefit from it greatly. So, um, we, we're going to see, as we start going through here, uh, and we're just going to look at the first eight verses, James doesn't deal with a lot of pleasantries, and he goes straight into maybe one of the most difficult subjects there is in our life, suffering, suffering through trials. And so you can see James, a servant of God. We've already discussed who he is, and he calls himself a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. So this word servant, this is doulos. This is a bond slave. Um, so he sees himself as a bond slave of his master. Uh, and so since... We're talking about his older brother. And so since he sees himself as a bond slave of King Jesus, uh, it's important to him that he obeys what Jesus tells him to do. He sees himself as a bond slave to Jesus. Now, um, while Jesus is his biological brother... The more important relationship for James is the fact that he is Jesus's spiritual brother. Jesus is his spiritual big brother, not just his biological. And that takes precedent in his life. And that is more important to him. And so since Jesus is the master that tells him what to do, that's why the book's written with such an obedience feel. Jesus has told me what's important in our lives. And so since that's the case, this is how I'm supposed to live. This is how I'm supposed to um, operate. Although Jesus is his biological brother, uh, he wants to obey. When he says a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, now, he's calling his brother the Lord, which is pretty amazing. Uh, and he says that I am a doulos, I am a slave or a bond servant to my own brother. It took James a while to come around to this. As I said, uh, it was after the resurrection that James became a follower of Jesus. It would, you would do the same thing. If your older brother was telling you that he was the Messiah, you'd be like, I don't know. But then if he came back from the dead, you'd say, well, maybe he is. And I don't remember him ever sinning. Only Jesus and James have that relationship. Your older brother's never going to be the Messiah. Neither. I don't have an older brother, but if I did, he wouldn't either. Um, so... This is the relationship that James primarily sees with himself with Jesus. Jesus is my spiritual older brother. He's my biological older brother, but he's my spiritual older brother. Therefore, the things that he tells me, I have to obey. And it says, uh, servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. This is referencing, obviously, from Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel. But when it tells us that, it's telling us some key things. When we read that, there's a lot of key things we need to understand. One, they're dispersed. And the reason why they're dispersed is because persecution had come to them. And they were were there and persecution came. They thought, well... We can die here or we can go some other places and not die. And they chose the latter, clearly. So they're dispersed because of persecution. And so the launching into verse 2 of telling them to count their sufferings as joy is because there's an immediate problem that they're being persecuted. They've had to disperse away from family and friends all over to get away from it. And they're all experiencing trials. And he's telling them to count that trial as joy. So that's the first thing we can see is that he's, he's addressing an immediate problem that's going on. Uh, the second thing we can see is that James is writing to Christians, um, believers in the gospel, believers in people just like James who had made Jesus their spiritual older brother. If you're a believer in Christ, you've done this as well. You've said, I'm a sinner. I need to be saved, therefore my only hope is Christ. He died on the cross, and when he died on the cross, he took my place. He resurrected, defeating Satan, sin, and death. And now, he is also my, I'm his doulos, he's my spiritual master, I want to obey him. And so, we identify with this writing because we are also, just like James, the spiritual little brothers and little sisters of Jesus. He's our king, Jesus, our, our older brother, the one that we obey. And so, James is writing to Christians, primarily, that are... Um, receivers of persecution because of this dispersion. They're scattered all over. And certainly Gentile Christians are invited in to read this and, and benefit from this. But he's writing primarily to Jewish Christians, but Gentiles as well. Um, and the last thing is, uh, this is a, uh, to people who have been dispersed which means he's not writing to one city and one church and has one church centric problems. He's writing to many people, which means this is a circular letter. So it's going all around. So many people can benefit from what he's trying to write. So Which means for us, uh, he's not identifying a first century problem throughout this letter. He's just writing general application that applies to all over, which means there's broad applications for us that we can really kind of Not have to like struggle to say, well, is this a first century problem or really for us? Most of the things that he writes, since it's a circular letter, apply to us. All all of it, not most. Um, And so he launches right in on verse two with trials. So how do you tend to think about trials? When you think about trials, when you think about sufferings, how do you tend to think about them? When when writer says this uh, regarding trials, there's a number of trials Christians will have to face. Um, This list might be you. It definitely might be you. Uh, In any typical church fellowship, there'll be some people experiencing bereavement, the agonies of broken relationships, or the lack of having relationships. There'll be instances of family breakdown, long-term and serious health issues, depression, depression. Temptation towards sin. In some cases, there will be suffering caused by things that have happened in the past to people. There will be things that have been done to individuals that have left deep and long-term scars. There will also be things that individuals have done to each other that continue to haunt them. This is the reality of life in this present world. This was the reality of James first readers, and it's the reality of us. So we all have trials. So what's your posture? What's your mindset? How do you tend to think and approach trials? Do you just say, I'm going to put my head down, plow through this, just try to make it through until it's over, until I can finally have life back to normal? That's the way I get through trials. Or do you operate in a different way? Do you say, oh, I'm in a trial. This is going to be a great opportunity. What an opportunity. Now, obviously, very few of us think that way. Um, But James is wanting us to think that way. God is wanting us to think that way. That when trials come... We should approach them with the best of we can, um, controlling our mind and and pushing ourselves to say, this is an opportunity. Now that doesn't come intuitively. James and and God are going to give us a different outlook than what comes normally. Most of us will say, put my head down, plow through this thing. I want it over so I can get back to normal where things are a little bit easier. But they're saying, when you approach one, when a trial comes your way, don't do that. Instead, Look at it as an opportunity. Now, I have five different notes on trials I want us to see here. The first one is this, and we can see it in verse one. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. So the first thing is trials are going to happen to you. It's when, not if. Trials are going to, you and I are going to experience a trial at some point, at point in your life. Uh, you're not the anomaly, It might happen late. No one is exempt. My life was pretty trial-free for 43 years, and then the last year has become extremely difficult. But for 43 years, pretty simple. Lots of ease. Yours might be totally different. It might have been 13, trial, and you're still dealing with it. The point that I'm trying to make is that every single one of us is going to have a trial, a, a, a period of difficulty in our life. The Bible is helping us understand that if when... not. Not if, but when a trial happens in your life, you are totally normal and it is totally normal because we all live in a Genesis the three world. So if you're not in one right now and you've never had one put on your seatbelt, it's likely coming soon. I would guess not to make you feel nervous and scared, but it's going to, right? So what can we do? What are some things? What, what are we to do with the information that it's going to happen? Not be surprised, uh, posture ourselves as best as we can to receive it and create when it happens and more welcoming reality when it happens. Now, I know that's difficult. We're going to talk about that. Uh, but those are the things that we can start doing. Now, the first thing I wanted you to know is trials are going to happen. The second thing I want you to know is this. It comes straight from the text. The first two words, count it all joy. God is instructing us to count it all joy. Some translations will, will say consider it all joy. Count or consider. So before we get into what we're supposed to react, we know that it's coming. And the second thing you're going to put it up is God is instructing us in this particular text more so how we're supposed to think than how we're supposed to feel about trials. The, the primary instruction from God in the midst of a trial that he's giving to you right now is think a certain way. We're largely not capable to control how we feel about during, during trials, but we are largely capable of controlling how we think during a trial. Feelings are important. I'm not dismissing them, but they should not be the focus. They're not James' focus. They're not God's focus. James is telling us that when a trial happens, even if we feel differently, we should think a certain way. It's important how we think. And this is written in the command form. When he says count it or, or consider, this is an imperative form. This is a command from him. Think rightly during the trial. So we know two things. It's going to happen. And when it happens, regardless of how we feel, God is primarily interested in the way we think during this. You're going to have feelings. I mean, some of us are emotional. Some of us are not emotional. We largely cannot control that. We could try. Thinking will affect our feelings if we're trying to think rightly. But the primary thing that God wants us to do once we go into it is to try to think rightly, even if our feelings are, are on a roller coaster ride. Third thing, and this is where we're getting to really the meat of it. We know that it's going to happen. We know that we're supposed to think. Here it is. Verse three, number three. The Christian way or God's instructions on how to think about trials is to count them as pure joy. If any of you count it all joy, in some translations say pure joy. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Whenever you enter into a trial, you're supposed to think of it as an opportunity and you're supposed to say, oh man, a trial, this is awesome. I'm going to consider this trial, this hardship, this, this confronting of suffering as absolute pure joy. I am so elated this is happening. Now, um, in case you think that your trial doesn't apply to this notice what he uses and he does it intentionally james is making sure that no one discounts themselves because he says when you meet trials of various kinds the various kinds is so that we will never think that our trial is the exception to the rule this applies to every kind of trial all of mine and all of your trials, whether they're tiny, tiny, small, and you think, well, this is a real small one, so God doesn't really care about this tiny, small one. Or if it's vastly huge, it's like God doesn't cover, and he covers the little trials, but not the big one. It doesn't matter, like where you are. Various kinds is trying to make us understand that uh, everybody is included into this mindset. Everybody, no matter what trial you're going to, is to consider this trial absolute pure joy. Now, I know that this is unbelievably difficult. It's unbelievably difficult. This is not the way that we naturally think about trials, but God wants us to think about them this way. Now, so if someone's experiencing trial, do you walk up them, to them right, in the, right when it hits them and say, hey, count this thing pure joy. This is great. This is going to be a great opportunity. Right in the midst of difficulty, you walk up and say, "Woo, what an opportunity, count it joy. No, that's not at all. Like, that's not what you do. Consider John 11, when Lazarus had died. And Jesus walked up to Mary and Martha. He didn't say, Mary and Martha, it's a great opportunity. Consider your brother's death pure joy, right? What does he do? He grieves with them. It's a real moment. He grieves with them. So when's the right time? When is the right time? Not then. Uh, As a pastor, I've been in the room with some of the most intense grieving I've ever experienced happening in my life that people will have. And in that moment, my only proper response with them is to be like Jesus in John 11 and grieve, not point them to count it all joy. Right? So when do you tell them to consider it all joy? When do you do it? Right now. Before it's happening. So that they have a foundation set up so that the spirit has come and done in our hearts and minds the proper instruction beforehand. And we have a foundation set, a sturdy foundation, so that when the moment happens, we are better equipped to consider this trial as pure joy. Now, we likely won't react immediately in that, but we have a good foundation set up so that we will consider it pure joy. Why should we consider a trial pure joy. Why would God tell us embrace this trial with absolute joy? W- what benefit is it to embrace a trial with, with, with great joy? James tells us straight from the hip, straightforward. He tells you because the trial is going to mature you in Christ likeness. That's why embrace the trial as pure joy, Not because the trial is great, but because what happens in your heart during the trial afterwards is great. So that's why it's pure joy. I'm going to be more Christ-like. He says it straightforward to us right here in verse 3. For you know that the testing, that's the same thing as the trial, of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Lacking in nothing. So... The reason why we consider it pure joy is because the, the trial is going to mature us. Now, if our goal in life is more stuff, more ease, more comfort, then we will not consider trials pure joy. If our goal in life before trial hits is Christ likeness, when the trial comes to us, if our goal is Christ, Christ likeness and we're going to be conformed in his likeness, During this trial, we can take joy in the trial because we know we know no matter how tough the trial is, it's going to move us towards our goal of Christ likeness. But if our goal is ease, comfort, no pain, when the trial comes, we'll be shattered because we're not moving towards our goal. Therefore, we must have a radically God-centered perspective on life so that when the trial comes, we really will embrace it. So number four is God's agenda in our trial is our maturity and our completion. And so our life goal, trials or not, is Christ-likeness. So when it comes, here it is. He's promised us this. He tells us that when a trial comes, know that when the trial comes, God's agenda in that trial is our maturity and our completion. Our, you can name this all kinds of different ways. Our sanctification, our Christ-likeness, our holiness, our righteousness being attained more. However you want to say it. But this is the ultimate purpose for trials in the book of James. The ultimate purpose for any trial in your life, for any suffering in your life, for any difficult circumstance in your life, the ultimate purpose is verses three and four. For you know that the testing of your faith will produce steadfastness, and steadfastness when it has its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Every one of us, we deeply desire, we should, as believers, deeply desire more Christ likeness in our life. Trials bring this about. Our faith, our trust in Christ grows through the learning and perseverance of hardship and trials. And we become more like him. Paul says almost this exact same thing that James says in Romans chapter 5. He says, Romans chapter 5 verse 3 and 4. Not only that, but we rejoice, count it pure joy, in suffering Trials, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And he just says that we produce steadfastness and it comes into its perfect and complete effect. I mean, Paul, is, Paul and James are, are hand in glove here saying the exact same thing. Suffering makes us more Christ-like. So whenever you're commanded to think when a trial hits that this is going to be great because I'm going to have the opportunity to become more Christ-like... There are two places in the scriptures that promise this. Now I've seen it in our own church. When I've been with people in some of the most gut-wrenching difficulties that anybody should endure. And I've seen how it matures them. And looking back, they would not say, wow, that trial was joy. They would say they're joyful for the maturity that they had and experienced and grew in in Christ-likeness because of the trial. The trial itself was awful but the maturity that happened was great. They would love, they love that it happened, the maturity. And so suffering for us, or uh, going through a trial shows us that we need to strengthen and deepen our faith and our trust in God. The, this, we have a muscle, if you will, of faith or in trust in God that needs to be exercised. And without trials, it will grow weak. But whenever we experience a trial, the, It will get stronger because the pushback of the trial and the difficulties, they're an opportunity for us to say, I'm going to cling to the promise of God more tightly here than ever before. And our faith grows stronger. The muscle of faith, the muscle of trust in Christ grows stronger. God doesn't just want a tiny bit of growth in our lives. He wants us to grow massively. And so this can be encouraging and it can also be humbling. But how is it that this is encouraging? When you hear this, how is it that this is encouraging? This is why. When you're going through the midst of a trial, when you're going through suffering, the easy thing for us to think is this is gratuitous. This has no reason. There's no there's no point for this happening. Here's why it's encouraging. Um, God is totally sovereign in every single one of your trials. it's important to know that he doesn't just have foreknowledge. I would say there's an ordination behind it. He has not only foreknowledge of it, but he has ordained that the trial would happen. Now, if that's not the case, then you could say this trial has no purpose. If God's not in control, then it's totally gratuitous. But since God is totally sovereign over all things, When a trial comes and he's good and he's all powerful, you and I can take heart to say, well, there is a purpose then behind this. God has a reason for this. And that's very encouraging. This means every single trial you and I go through, there's a reason. There's a purpose behind it. And then trials can be our joy because we're going to reach our goal of Christ likeness. That's the primary reason that God has. us go through trials is Christ likeness. Now we may not be able to see the purposes of God immediately or understand them completely, but there are purposes, your trials and my trials, your sufferings and my sufferings are never, ever a wasted experience. Never. That's encouraging because if you're in the midst of one right now, God has a reason. If next week you enter it, You have a foundation set right now that you can know God has a reason for it. Platt says it this way. David Platt says, God is encouraging these believers to embrace trials, not so much for what they are, but for what God sovereignly accomplishes through them. So we embrace trials, not because trials are great. That's crazy. It's no fun to be in pain. But don't miss this. This is a promise of God in verses 3 and 4. When we cling to the Lord, He will bring us to more maturity. Spurgeon says it this way. Same idea. Great hearts can only be made by great troubles. So as we go through difficulties, then we, our heart becomes more Christ-like. It becomes great. D.L. Moody says this. Trials and... You're like, I don't want that confidence. But it's what he it says. Trials are God's vote of confidence in us. Meaning, God knows that when this trial hits you, he knows that you can mature in it. And he has that confidence that you'll walk through it and you'll become more Christ-like. Now, you might say, can I have not, not have that go to confidence, please? I would certainly say it too. No one has that. Like, bring it on. But we know what's going to happen. They're painful, they cause us grief. They bring us hardship. But he knows how much you're going to mature through it. And he knows the good that comes from it. And so he He brings us into it and through it because of this, um, the fact that it's going to happen. The good that happens is not the trial itself. It's the good that accomplish, accomplishes through it. One one man, he's a named Malcolm muggeridge something like that he's 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 75 years old he's looking back at his whole life he's he's looking back at how he grew in christ and this is what he says contrary to what might be expected i look back on the experiences at the time seeming seemed especially contrary to what might be expected i look back on experiences that at the time seemed especially desolating and painful with particular satisfaction now Indeed, I can say with complete truthfulness that everything I have learned in my 75, in this, 75 years in this world, everything that is truly enhanced and enlightened enlighten my existence in Christ has been through affliction, not through happiness. Whether pursued or attained, he experienced greater growth through affliction than just ease and comfort and joy. I think that's true for us, all of us. So when we have these these difficulties come to us. There's a promise to us that we are going to become more Christ-like. It's God's agenda that when we go to go through it, that we're going to become more complete in Christ. Therefore, we can consider the trial pure joy. Even though the trial is awful, the Christ-likeness that is attained is great. Now In suffering, in the immediacy of it, one of the dangers is that the pain is so all-consuming that we are so absorbed by what we're going through in the immediacy of the pain that we are absolutely overwhelmed by it. And as I said in number two, God is primarily then therefore more uh, interested in the way we think than the way we feel. So how is it that we can temper and train our minds to think rightly through the suffering whenever the immediacy of the pain is so difficult? How can we do that when trials are so difficult? How can we, when we know we're supposed to think a certain way, but we're not, think that way? How do we do that? Well, we shouldn't experience paralysis and disorientation too long. Although it's okay if we do at the beginning of a trial. James tells us how we can actually do that. Therefore, God tells us since trials are supposed to teach us how to know and love and trust God, but we are experiencing massive grief and we don't even know how to train our minds to do it. He tells us number five, in the midst of trials, we must ask God for wisdom. He says it to you right there in verse five. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. Now, A lot of times, verse 5 has kind of been pulled out and kind of set over here on its own. and says, hey, in general concepts, if you need wisdom, ask God for wisdom and he gives it to you. And that's true, principally. But we need to realize that that verse in context is to be understood in suffering. In the midst of suffering, when you just don't know how to get through it, you just don't know how to think, you have no clue on how to even think, how can this be joyous? How am I supposed to say that this is going to be awesome and so joyful? You ask God for, jo- for, for wisdom to know how to do it. In the midst of trials, we ask God for wisdom. Now, I want you to notice, just like verse 2 is a command. It's in the imperative. Think this way. Verse 5 is in the imperative. It's in the command. You must pray. You must pray and ask God for wisdom. I think verse 5 might be one of the most beautiful and encouraging promises in all of scripture. Get the weight of this. The God of the universe. The God of the universe that has created everything in the world is saying, I will impart wisdom to you in the midst of this terrible trial if you just ask me. I will impart it. Ask me. And I, the God of the universe, unlimited resources in the most difficult time. And you have no clue how to navigate it is saying, I will give you the wisdom. If you'll just ask me, this is probably one of the most beautiful and encouraging promises in all of scripture. The reformer John Calvin says, since we see that the Lord does not so require from us what is above our strength but that he is ready to help us, provided we ask. Let us therefore learn, whenever he commands us to ask, that we ask for it. So we have the power to perform it. We have the, the power to be able to go through this. Now, James' assumption in the middle of suffering is twofold. Whenever you're going through suffering, he has two assumptions. One, you and I need wisdom. Assumption number two, you and I lack wisdom. (laughs) Those are the two assumptions. We need it and we lack it. We have a deficiency. We need wisdom. And what do we lack wisdom in? What are our deficiencies of wisdom? Uh, We're going to look over the shoulders here of David Platt. He has a little commentary and he gives us three really helpful ways to understand our deficiency of wisdom. He says we lack wisdom in three primary areas, knowledge, perspective, experience, knowledge in the midst of the suffering. We need the knowledge of God, the wisdom of God to help us really realize what's going on here. We're singular focused and maybe we don't get it, right? We need God to expand our understanding and knowledge to realize what's going on. That's the first way we lack it. The second is we lack perspective. We, we see our trial at this angle. God sees the trial at every angle. And so God help me not just have knowledge to realize what's going on, but the proper perspective so i can see this trial at every angle the way that you see it god and then also we lack experience we don't know what to do and how to react in the trial and god does and so we need our lord who commands us to ask to give us the wisdom so that we can make it through the trial now Verse six through eight, because he's talking about prayer, verse six through eight, James takes a little excursus and a, and a tiny little theology of prayer. Here's what, here's a little theology of prayer. We're going to come to that in a second. I want to I go over it, but I want to finish his main thoughts here because James, when he says, if any of you likes wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without approaching it will be given to him, sounds a lot like his older brother, J- Jesus in Matthew seven. Where Jesus says, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Who ask him. And so notice the way here. We're still in verse 5. We haven't gotten to the theology of prayer excursus. Notice the way that God gives to us in prayer. And I want you to see there's three ways. And how they mirror the gospel. And how God, in giving us Christ, gives us wisdom. You'll see it. He, he, gives, he gives to us generously. in three. He gives us wisdom in three ways. If any of you likes wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach. So first, he gives to us generously. In the same way that he gives us Jesus in the gospel, he doesn't just kind of give us a little bit of forgiveness. He doesn't just say, when you have some. He overwhelms us with the grace of Jesus. I mean, all sins covered forever all the ones you've done and all the ones you'll do and i'll never ever run out of grace for you he gives us generously and the gospel he gives us christ and in the same way he's not holding back with his wisdom he gives us gen- to us generously when we ask for wisdom he also gives to all so when we ask for wisdom he doesn't just say oh you can have wisdom and you can have wisdom not you not you when we ask as believers he gives to all who ask it's the same in the gospel For all who call upon his name, they are given the right to be called children of God. Everyone who confesses is forgiven. The third way is that he gives without reproach. This means that when you ask for wisdom, he doesn't kind of shake his head at you and say, okay, but man, you really messed up this time. No guilt, without reproach. No reproach upon you. When you ask for wisdom, he just gives it to you. Like a good father it's the same in the gospel. Like when we confess, he's not like, okay, but you are really terrible, but here's forgiveness. No, it's holiness, Christ likeness, forgiveness. You are forgiven. Absolutely. And there's not like this thing inside of you that feels like, ah, oh, I still feel bad. Right? And the gospel, all that's erased. And so he's reminding us of the character of God, not just in the way in which he gives wisdom, but in the way that he has forgiven us in Christ, he gives us, generously to all without reproach. And here he's giving us just like he gives us his son, God gives us wisdom in the same way. Romans eight thirty two, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how we not also with him graciously give us all things? In the same way he gives us his son, he gives us wisdom. And we should ask. So how are you how in the world are you ever going to be able to count suffering trials of pure joy because you've asked for wisdom and that's how you can do it god god's generosity does not stop when we become a christian he continues to flow inexhaustibly into our lives like here when he gives us wisdom now there's a little excursus here in verses six through eight on a theology of prayer by the book of james so let's read it understand prayer, but let him ask in faith. So we're told to ask. And then he has this little way to ask in prayer. And this can, this can be confusing. So I want to make sure we understand 6 eight. Let him ask in prayer. I'm sorry. Let him ask in faith with no doubting. <clears throat> For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man and stable in all his ways. How are we supposed to understand that? if you that at first, be like, well, gosh, I might ask for wisdom the wrong way and never get it. What if I have a little shred of doubt? If I have a little shred of doubt in my prayer life, then I'm done for. Am I supposed to just kind of psych myself up full belief, full belief, no doubting, full and Stop. Like, like, how's it supposed to happen? I don't understand. What if I doubt? What if I have a shred? Am I done? I don't think that's what Jesus, uh, James means when he says doubt. So if you write in your Bibles, I do. It's not against his rules. Um, this is the way to understand what James thinks and therefore what God thinks in this text about doubt. Circle the word doubt and go to verse 8 and circle the word double-minded and just draw a little line. Doubt means double-minded. It doesn't mean psyching yourself up so that you have absolutely no shred of doubt. It means being double-minded. It means... I'm. Um, dipping my foot into the kingdom of God and see what he has to say. And I'm dipping my foot into the kingdom of the world and trying to figure out worldly wisdom. And I'm going to just, I'm going to do both. I want both. I'll give you an example. Um, I used to work at this camp called Camp McCall a long time ago. And we had this canoe dock where people could take out the canoes And the proper way. Like if there's a canoe is to put both feet in the canoe and then sit down on the dock and slide your fanny into the seat, right? We have to say fanny. We're not allowed to say anything else in church. I mean at church camp. But there's some people that don't know, right? And so what they do is they put their foot in the canoe, and then what happens? It starts going out, and all of a sudden, they're doing, you know, this massive split that they weren't created to do. Um, (laughs) That's the spiritual equivalent to what James is saying here. Uh, You're doing the spiritual splits. You're having one foot firmly set on the kingdom uh, of God, and see what it says. But you have the other foot set on the kingdom of the world, trying to figure out, and eventually, that's doubting. That's that's wrong. That's exactly what he's warning us against here. That you should not do that. You don't check out what God says in the Bible and check out what the world says. You don't have one foot in the kingdom of God and the other foot in the kingdom of the world. That's what he means by he says double-minded man. You live our only hope is God. I don't trust the world and its wisdom. My only hope is him. So when I talking about doubting, it's meaning That you don't think the world has just as much to say about God. It has nothing to say compared to what God has to say. I'm trusting totally in him. I mean, I'm nervous. I'm sometimes kind of like, oh man, I wonder. But it doesn't mean that I trust the world totally. So it doesn't mean you have to kind of psych yourself up like a boxer. And like, no doubt, no shred of doubt. I'm going to get it. And if, oh man, I probably doubt it, he's not going to give it to me. That's not what it means at all. So the theology of prayer that he gives us is an understanding to help us realize that God, for those that don't doubt, for those that don't live in this spiritual split, will give you wisdom when you ask. Now, let's be careful here. There's a difference between, and it's sometimes tough, there's a difference between receiving wisdom and feeling wiser. You may not feel wiser immediately. But it doesn't mean that God's promise isn't true. If God has promised that you will receive wisdom from Him, He will give it to you. And in the moment right there, you might, I don't feel any wiser. This didn't work. No. When God says you will receive wisdom, don't go on how you feel, go on what you're thinking. God is the God of all good. He's the God of all comfort. He's the God that keeps his promises. He never breaks a promise. He's always good. He's always faithful. He's always strong. He can do everything he wants. He's told me to ask. He's going to give it to me. I may not feel wiser in this moment, but as I've gone through this entire process and I am trusting on how I'm supposed to think, not feel, I'm counting this as pure joy, even though it stinks. I know that I'll grow. When I look back, I'll say, oh man, he did give me wisdom when I asked for it. I either knew it at that moment or I didn't, but now I do know. That's the truth. That's the way that the Lord works in our lives. That's the way that He works in our hearts. So don't confuse receiving wisdom and feeling wiser. It's a promise in verse 5 that the God of all creation has made to you, and you will receive it. So let's conclude this way Are you in a trial today? If you're not, you will be, and that's okay. That's what you have a family here for. That's why the Lord is promised to be with you. The people of God have always experienced trials. The Jewish Christians were in the first century, and you and I are no different today. We are maybe in the midst of one right now, maybe not. It's when, not if, we are going to have them. In the midst of your trial, whether it's right now or pending God wants you to think correctly. He wants you to think correctly. You can't largely control the way you feel. Neither can I. But we can largely control the way we think. He wants us to think correctly. He wants us to take the long view of the trial and see it as joy. Even though the immediacy is difficult, he wants us to take the long view and think long and say, this is going to bring joy. The trial hurts. But the joy is the fact that I'm going to be more mature in Christ when this is over. I have no idea how to do it. In and of myself, no clue. And so he tells us, ask for wisdom. If you're in the midst of it right now, are you asking for wisdom? Say it. Lord, give me wisdom to walk through this. You must ask. Or are you doing the spiritual splits? Seeking wisdom from both God and the world. It's not going to work. Ask God for wisdom. He promises he'll be there for you. He'll meet you in that trial. And even though it's painful right now, in the end, you are going to be more complete in Christ. So let's make that our number one goal in our life. Not ease, not comfort, not happiness, over whatever. Christ likeness. And so when we go through a trial, we've actually met, achieved, received what we want. Christ likeness. Let's pray. Lord, I just confess, this is, this is such a hard text. It's good and it's encouraging, but it's, but it's hard. As someone who's experienced a difficulty over the last year, and I know my friends here are in the middle of one or about to have one, we just confess that we're frail and fragile and don't think like we're supposed to all the time and need your help. We're weak and you're strong. And we don't like trials. We, we naturally seek our own comfort. We seek our own ease. Help us make Christ's likeness our goal, not ease and comfort. And Lord, we beg of you in the midst of suffering, in the midst of trials, we ask you for wisdom. Give us wisdom. Help us see it and know it right away. God, I love my friends here. I love them so much. And I want them, along with me, to be able to count trials as pure joy. We cannot do that without your help. Please, Lord, be kind and gracious. Help us think rightly. Thank you for Jesus, who, in the gospel, has been so generous to us. He lavishes us with grace, and he never, ever reproaches us. And you do... The same when we ask for wisdom. You're so kind to us. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're going to a. Time-